Hi everyone, Dan here. This episode is going to be different than usual. For a start, I've had to script this bit, so I hope it doesn't sound too forced. Before I explain why I'm doing this, here's a clip from the first podcast Howard and I ever recorded. If you've listened to us since the Lee Gushing podcast or have explored our YouTube channel, you might have heard this before, but it's the first time this clip has gone out on this podcast feed. This is from 2016. I think it's it's nice if we think of people we'd like to dedicate the podcast to, and for the first episode I would like to dedicate it to my sister Maureen, who frankly put me on the, the train that has brought me here by introducing me to old horror movies when I was probably old enough to be ashamed of being scared. I think I was about 14 when she made me watch Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Um, that was pretty much my first horror movie, and um, one which has a very special place in my heart. That was the first of many times I've mentioned Maureen across our podcasts and videos. Well, a few days ago, Maureen died in Spain, where she's been living for a few months every year, and where she'd been stuck since the pandemic hit. She was only in her mid-sixties. It wasn't exactly sudden, she'd been ill for a little while, but three months ago she was fine, and it was a week ago that we got the news of how serious things really were. Of course we, everyone in my family, are utterly shocked, shattered, and heartbroken, and I don't really know how to process it. That's my problem, of course, and this isn't the place to eulogise her. You didn't know her, unless you're one of my close friends or family friends listening, but I felt like I had to acknowledge her passing here. Not only did Maureen set me on the journey into horror on which I found myself, not only did she encourage me and support me in so many creative pursuits over the years, but the continuance of that journey will now ring with memories of time spent with Maureen, talking and laughing over the fun of it all. Memories like the two of us looking through Jonathan Rigby's book English Gothic and pausing to laugh at a particularly pre-epic picture of the actor Darren Nesbitt, or chuckling about the music of Amicus composer Michael Dress, or the name of an out-of-the-unknown bit-part actor called Laidlaw Dawling. In a way, by carrying on the fun in the form of this podcast, I hope we'll be doing something to keep Maureen's spirit alive. Despite the sad news, Kirsty, Stella, Ian and I did go ahead and record a normal episode this week, a rather wonderful chat about Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I can't wait to share with you. However, I haven't had the time or the energy, to be honest, to give it the post-production it deserves, and so instead I'm going to present a few highlights from the Lee Cushing podcast that haven't yet made it to this podcast feed. Howard and I used to have a segment called The Bag of Death, in which we'd take a bag containing the titles of all the British horror films we'd both seen, pick out a film at random and then air our off-the-cuff musings about it. There are four examples here, originally recorded for our episodes about The Curse of Frankenstein, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Scream and Scream Again, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. These are followed by a little bit of previously unheard material that Howard and I recorded for a feature that we later abandoned due to a poor quality recording. I've managed to improve the sound quality a bit, but it still isn't great. But it does feature some material recorded at Tabarca, a small island just off the shore of Santa Pola in Spain, where Maureen used to live. 
so it seemed appropriate to give it an airing now. Listening back to it, I was sad that I never actually invited Maureen to record a contribution to the podcast, but I also suspect that she would have found the idea somewhat horrifying, and I always hoped our show would be something that entertained rather than embarrassed her. Anyway, here they are. Bags and bags and bags of death. Podcast starts. The bag of death. So the bag of death is a part of the podcast which we've ripped off rather um, affectionately from uh, a randomly themed Doctor Who podcast called The Memory Cheats, in which every episode they choose a different episode at random and speak of it. Uh, the Bag of Death is filled with the titles of horror films. We will plunge a hand into it, yes. and we do not know what will emerge. So, Howard, please produce this What have we got? This is genuinely exciting. I don't know what it's going to be. The Ghoul! The Ghoul! The Ghoul! Superb. Well, I'm glad I picked The Ghoul. 1974 is The Ghoul, a Tyburn production directed yes. by uh, Freddie, Freddie Francis. Francis. Um, Tyburn was a company started by Freddie Francis' son, Kevin, whose aim was to recreate the style of the glory days of Hammer, because by the mid early to mid-70s, Hammer was on the wane, really, and, and, and its style was going out of fashion. Um, whether Tyburn's films really captured the quality of Hammer is up for debate. What do we think about The Ghoul? Well, I have a soft spot for The Ghoul. It's not as good as a Hammer film, uh, a classic Hammer film, but I like it because, simply because, it's one of the very first horror films I saw, and... Back in the very early 80s, uh, BBC Two began showing horror double bills uh, every, I think, Saturday night. And the first double bill, and it was actually on the front cover of the Radio Times, which is what was particularly exciting. That's how important horror films were back in those days. Uh, And it was Night of the Demon, which we may talk about on another occasion, and The Ghoul. And there was a really terrible picture of Peter Cushing that looked nothing like Peter Cushing on the front cover of the Radio Times. And so we at school were all very excited about this, because we all loved horror films. I think, I think we all enjoyed it. I think we were all a little bit disappointed by the ghoul himself when he was finally revealed at the end. Spoil it too much. <laughs> um, there is a ghoul in it. And this was when Peter Cushing was sort of, um, after his wife tragically died, so uh, he was not in a particularly good place, perhaps emotionally, and he was just sort of... And he plays a lonely man mourning the loss of his wife, doesn't he? He, he holds dear a photograph of his wife in a frame which is actually a photograph of Peter Cushing's real mm. wife, um, Helen. Yes. Um, and the scene where he picks it up and starts talking about his memories of her is really quite wrenching emotionally. It is, you know it that. is. It's almost too kind of emotionally affecting to be in the film. The film can't quite support that sort of... The film is a, is a fairly sort of standard horror film about people being murdered. It's sort of a bit like Psycho, actually. It's got the plot of Psycho. In a sense. Well, yes, the, um, the, the, I, I keep mentioning critics. That, um, Dave Golder in SFX magazine rather wonderfully summed up the ghoul as being a little bit predictable. 
um, and that the title gave away what was going on. He said, it's as if Psycho had been called knife-wielding crossdresser. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Um, but it's I mean, if you I always say if you like that sort of thing if you like that sort of film it's I, I think it's very well done. Yeah. John Hurt's in it as a sort of crazed gardener. Yeah, we should say that when we say it's similar to Psycho, it has it's it's innocent characters through a series of plot developments which I can't really remember find their way at this old creepy house in which Peter Cushing lives and there's something nasty mm. elsewhere in the house. Um, and various characters are killed. Yeah, a character's killed that you might not think is going to be killed, sort of like. Um, and it does have quite a nice cast, as you say. John Hurt, a, a very young John Hurt, uh, as the groundskeeper, is, is an interesting presence. And also Stuart Bevan and Alexandra Bastida yes. from the the TV series The Champions, which was big in the late sixties. Yes, and Gwen Watford, who's in Taste Blood of Dracula as oh, well. So there's a certain Hammer element to it, definitely. I mean, mm. a lot of Hammer people are involved. Um, it's just not quite, it just, again, looks a little bit low budget, you know, a little bit sort of reduced. It's a, a bit stayed for the time as well, yes. I think, isn't it? I think it's, it's, it's one for the fans. If you like Cushing and you like the Hammer mode, you'll probably be quite intrigued to watch The Ghoul. I have a, a soft spot for it mainly because it was on so often when I was very young and I watched it a lot. And it was always a film I enjoyed then. Uh, with a, there's a companion piece called Legend of the Werewolf, which is another film made by the same studio around about the same time. Again, it's sort of trying to appropriate the Hammer style, uh, not quite lacking, lacking the resources to do it properly, lacking the grandeur of the Hammer films uh, and the professionalism in a way. They, they do look a little bit sort of... Um, I, I think the, the most interesting thing about The Ghoul is, it, isn't it set in the late 1920s? Yes. And you get the feeling that if Hammer had done it in their glory days, they probably would have created something of the 1920s in a quite opulent way. Whereas in The Ghoul, it's more or less down to a nice car, isn't it? Yes, there's, there's, there's a... Uh, it's a very, very car nice race. car. Yeah, there's, well, there's two nice cars. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I admire them for trying to keep that tradition going at a time when it, it was unfashionable, at a time when it came out more or less the same time as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that's the way ham- uh, horror's going in the 70s. And they're still trying to make something a little bit more romantic, a little bit more old-fashioned, a little bit more sort of um, in the traditional style. Um, and it's, I know, I enjoy it, I enjoy it. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's a little bit slow, um, but, you know, mm. I, I think it's entertaining. Got it on tape somewhere, I think, maybe I should seek it out, but... Uh, it's I... not available on DVD. Oh, the okay. producer's not allowed it to be released, that's something. Right. It's on, it's on that... Thing with Tube and You in the title uh, on this newfangled oh, internet is thing. It really? Well, I do think it's worth checking out because I do remember Cushing's performance being particularly strong. Mm. Uh, they always are, but this one's particularly near the knuckle um, and moving for that reason. Yes, it is. His performance is very moving. There's an extraordinary explosive moment near the end, which I, which I won't say anything more about. But yeah, um, I think in in summary, points for effort. Um, strong Cushing performance yes. for me. The Bag of Death And here it is The Bag of Death which this time we have audio to support the <laughs> fact that it's The Bag of Death That's production values folks <laughs> So this is the part of the show where we have a, a bag filled with the names of various 
British horror movies that both I and Howard have seen over the years, but maybe not so recently, maybe fairly recently. And Howard will pick one at random. I will pick one at random. We hope that it's good so that we can talk about it. As in the FA Cup, I will give it a good mix round. Can you hear that? And I'll pick one from the bottom. There. I think I'm picking something. Right, and it's Lust for a Vampire. Oh, my heavens. Uh, Lust for a Vampire. Another one which I think will be seen on the Horror Channel sometime yes. soon. Well, um... Uh, strange love, Howard. Strange um, <laughs> love. <laughs> it was made in about 1970 when Hammer was sort of, I think, slightly faltering a little bit. Mm. Uh, some of the films they were making at the time, like Horror of Frankenstein, were not so great. And they were the, they'd done so many Frankenstein films, so many Dracula films by that stage, that they were sort of, I think, becoming a little bit um, repeating themselves uh, and perhaps a little bit stale. And Although they made some great films at that time like um, Blood from Nomi's Tomb and stuff like that, and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Some of them were, were not so... They were a little later. They were a little bit later. This one is sort of like... And it's weird because it's, it's directed by uh, Jimmy Sangster, who it wrote is. all the, the classic early Hammer films, Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula the Mummy. But somehow it's just, it's just not very... It doesn't really do it for me. Well, also, Jimmy Sangster did direct some other films, some of which might be good. Uh, I'm thinking in particular. What's the, the? Is it Fear in the Night? Fear in the Night. Yes, yes. I think that that's that's quite respectable. I've never seen it. Horror of Frankenstein, though the spoof remake of Frankenstein, which we talked about last time, is not supposed to be very good. Um, it's not I, very good. And uh, but although he wrote that, he did not write Lust for a Vampire. But I I, I get the impression that the, there's just not a lot of interest in what's going on um, from the director. We should explain that. Um, because Hammer's horror output was faltering a little bit, we're moving into the era now where their most successful films, possibly the most successful British films going for a couple of years, were things like the On the Buses films, yes. which were Hammer productions. The horror market was petering out a little bit, and uh, Hammer were looking for ways to reinvigorate it. One of the things they tried was to bring in new stars, a new generation of horror stars, so we had people like Ralph Bates, who was introduced as the new Baron Frankenstein, in the horror of Frankenstein, and is also the star of this film. But they didn't really take off, although I think Ralph Bates is rather good. He is good. It, it, Peter Cushing was intended to play that part. In which one? In, in this? In for a Vampire. Oh, okay. Because I remember there's a picture of him in the costume, in right. the ponce glasses that Ralph Bates wears. So I think he was the first choice. He couldn't do it for whatever reason. Maybe this is when his wife was ill, so he couldn't do it. So Ralph Bates took over. Yeah, it's sort of... I just don't... <sighs> well, the weird thing is that although he, they were setting him up as a new young star... He is playing the the Cushing role in this, the elderly Cushing role. He's the kind of old fuddy-duddy guy in it, isn't he? Another thing they tried to do was engage new producers, and there were two independent producers with amazing names. In fact, there were three guys with amazing names in, in this production. The producers are called Harry Fine and Michael Style. How the hell that happened? And they ha- worked with a screenwriter with an even more amazing name called Tudor Gates. Tudor Gates, yes. Um, who, for a long time, I think, was like president of the Writers Guild of Great Britain or something. Um, and they came to Hammer with the idea of adapting Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, which was um, one of the early great pieces of vampire literature, you know, pre-Dracula, and has lesbian overtones to it, which they brought out rather vividly in the first film that they made, which was 1969-70s, The Vampire Lovers, directed by Roy Ward Baker, which has Cushing and Douglas Wilmer, but most importantly has Ingrid Pitt yeah, as Carmilla. And George Cole. 
and George Cole. Um, and that was very successful, relatively speaking, and did have these kind of explicit uh, lesbian sex scenes in it and nudity and things, Madeline Smith taking her clothes off and stuff. So Hamo kind of went, whoa, that works, more of that, please. So they engaged Fine and Style to make Lust for a Vampire, which was a sequel, essentially, to The Vampire Lovers. Uh, Jimmy Sangster came on board to direct it, but obviously didn't have a very good time doing it and didn't seem very interested in it. The film itself is one of Hammer's great disasters, I think. There's just... There are things in... Well, me and my friend Brendan went through a proper Hammer... I mean, I've always been in a Hammer phase. I'm never out of a Hammer phase. He, he'd come round to my house for coffee fairly regularly. We were school friends and we remained mates. We got into a phase where we'd always watch Hammer films and he'd say, think, he'd say, can we watch something with Christopher Lee in? Unfortunately, one week I didn't have Christopher Lee. I just had Lust for a Vampire. And... I just remember some of the production values being so rubbish that um, they really inspired us. They're just so funny. And in fact, there's a, there's a moment in the film where a character falls to his death down a well. I don't know if you remember this. Yes, I do. And um, it's funny that we were just talking on The Curse of Frankenstein last time about how well the death of Professor Waldman was achieved with the stuntman actually um, throwing himself through a balustrade and hitting the ground. Well, they didn't do that on this one. They just threw a dummy down a well and then dubbed a scream onto it. And the wonderful thing about the dummy is, A, it's obviously a dummy. It doesn't move or react in any way at all. And halfway down the well, it smashes into the side of the well head first. You know, and like, it doesn't break in half. But, you know, it's like, it's clearly a killing blow. If you, if you smash your head in, into anything like that, you're dead. But instead of cutting the scream off when it smashes, they had the scream do a reaction. So it's kind of like, ah, yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that's just one of my favourite dub screams ever. And I've I've been asked to recreate that on various things uh, more than once. And recently did it on a, an animated uh, project, which I hope will come out soon. And I hope sounds half as wonderful as the one on Lost for a Vampire. Another thing we should, we should say is that um, the character of Carmilla was killed at the end of The Vampire Lovers, um, but she's resurrected, being a vampire, she's resurrected in Lost for a Vampire, and there are kind of um, cultish characters who, who help to resurrect her and then do her bidding. And one of them is played by Mike Raven, who I believe was another radio DJ. There's themes in this episode which are coming up, which I'm rather pleased with. He was like a radio... I don't... Well, not Radio 1. I'm not sure if there was Radio 1 at the time. I don't know too much about him. I, I've sort of tried to find out about him. He was in a few horror films at that stage, mainly because he had, like, a very uh, sinister-looking goatee beard. Yeah. Uh, he was dubbed a couple of times in some of the films he's Well, seen, he was so. dubbed in this one. Um, basically, he wasn't an actor. He couldn't act. He did, he did have a nice beard, and that's it. He's in I Monster, which is a Christopher Lee Peter Crushing film, so we'll talk about that later on. But in this one, he plays like the big villain. But he just had... He, he had nothing. He had no presence. They obviously knew that. Jimmy Sangster obviously knew that. So they dubbed him with Valentine Dial, who is one of the best voices that any human being can ever have. And I can't do it, because nobody can. Hmm. And, they, and they even um, edited in close-ups of his eyes, extreme close-ups of his eyes, so that you wouldn't have to look at his expressionless face. And they're not even his eyes. They're Christopher Lee's eyes from one of the later Dracula films. So, you know, they obviously knew that they were hiding to nothing with this. There was also a problem that um, Ingrid Pitt, who'd originally played Carmilla, wasn't coming back. I don't know why. So they hired a Swedish actress called Jutta Stensgard, who um, has a very interesting chin. 
Yes. Is this the film where Jutta Stensgaard portrays somebody having an orgasm by crossing her eyes? Yes. That's yeah, this, cool. this is that film, yes. That's what I mean when I say strange love, because we have in that sex that's scene, song, which, which is with Ralph Bates, has a terrible early 70s pop song played over it called Strange Love. And you kind of imagine that the moment when he saw that in the edit suite was the moment when Jimmy Sangster went, I've had enough of this, because he did walk off the production, I think. I don't know. I just I just watched it not that long ago, and I just thought this film has no atmosphere. The cast is unengaging. Nobody's really bothered about it. You know, yeah. The story just doesn't seem to go anywhere. The production values are not high. It's just so bland. It's just it's just so kind of there's nothing to it. There's, not there's no substance to this film at all. Considering that we we go on about the music quite a lot in this podcast, there's not even a good musical score. The score is by a guy called Harry Robinson, and and again it's really bland. And he can be really good. But it just isn't. There's just nothing there. Everything is bland. Everything yeah. is bland about it. Oh, no. It's, it's just like nobody's bothered. It's just like they're all going through the motions. They've got to make this film, so they're doing it. But there's no... The energy and the passion that was in the early Hammer films uh, just isn't there at all. It's just... Well, it's, and also, it's just the sex. It's all about the sex. They've realised that sex sells mm. at that time. The irony, though, was that although sex sells in Britain, in America, the Hammer films were aimed at children... They were considered like childish fantasies, so they would cut out the extreme bits and, and market them at kids. So obviously they had to cut out all the sex and all the nudity and rendered the films incomprehensible by this point because they were all sex and nudity, it was all the walls. Yeah. Um, so Hammer was just cutting itself out of a whole market by doing that, really. This is the peril of the bag of death. We never know what's going to come out of the no. bag of death. And it might not be something very good, <laughs> and we might not be able to be very positive about it. What I will say, to reverse that tone slightly, is that you'd come out of that movie never wanting to watch another film produced by Harry Fine and Michael <laughs> Style and written by Tudor Gates, ever. But they did do a third Karnstein movie, which is a prequel to the other two, called Twins of Evil. Just a year later, it, or two years later, basically the whole creative team, Fine Style and Harry Robinson and Judy Gates, they're all back, but it's got Peter Cushing and a good director, John Hoff, and it's absolutely cracking. I love that one, and I love the theme music, and I hope we'll play that in uh, James Bernard's jukebox at some point. So don't watch Lust for a Vampire, yeah. well, even Lust- if it's on the horror channel. <laughs> wait for Twins of Evil. Lust for a Vampire is interesting in what it says about Hammer at the time. Kind of like the way Hammer was changing and what kind of audience it was trying to appeal to and sort of having a bit of an identity crisis at that time. Because a lot of Night of the Living Dead had come out at that stage and Witchfinder General had come out. So does Hammer keep on doing what it's always done or does it try to change to adapt to a new audience which wants more sex and which wants more violence? I think, it, I think it's an interesting film because it's, because it's sort of, it doesn't quite know what it wants to be. Hammer yes. doesn't quite know what, what he wants to be at that stage, I think. Yes, and they did become more confident and they got a bit more... But a there's, a, a, there's a lot of very good Hammer films made after that. Yes. Um, it's a transitional point. It's when they're trying to do a traditional vampire, Hammer vampire movie, but doing it in a new way and it doesn't work. Yeah. If you want to do something in a new way, you have to have a new idea, like Blood and Mummy's Tomb. It's a completely different take on the mummy, because yeah. it doesn't have a mummy in it. And it works. Lust for a Vampire is caught between being a traditional... Hammer vampire film and trying to be something different. But also I just say nobody was thought it was very you know, the script is just very banal and it's just just not a very good film anyway. Mm. Well alas, but yes, but Twins of Evil is very good. The Bag of So here we are, we have the bag of death, and Howard is going to take the bag of death from me. I'm going to give my bag a really good shake. You can hear that? 
In the Bag of Death is a collection of British horror films which we've both seen, and we never know which one will be produced. There's a lot in here. Let's have this one. Oh, hang on. F. And it's Quatermass 2. Quatermass 2! Quatermass 2. Wow. You know, I was almost tempted to use the music for Quatermass 2 as as this week's James Menard's jukebox. Uh, but I didn't because I thought it was about to come up some other time. Mm. And um, great, um, Quatermass 2 starring uh, Brian Donlevy. Well, I was <laughs> I was I was going to kind of take it backwards and go starring uh, Vera Day and Sidney James Sydney and James. John Longdon um, and William Franklin. Oh, and Brian Donlevy and, and Michael Ripper. So just r- to recap on what this movie is um we might have to cover some of the stuff we'd mentioned in the first podcast here um hammer's first kind of successful horror stroke sci-fi movie that kind of really put them on the map was the quatermass experiment in 1955 um that was based on a tv series which had been on bbc in 1953 the movie was a huge hit Hammer was not a name in itself when that movie was made. They brought in an American actor, an Irish-American actor, who was um, a name in Hollywood to play the lead for that reason, to kind of bolster their international chances. Um, So they brought in an actor called Brian Donlevy. Um, Unfortunately, the film, even though they did that, the film was not a huge hit in America. It was a massive hit in Britain because of its association with the Quatermass TV series, which was so well known. Um, Hammer wanted to build on that success so they immediately wanted to basically make a sequel but Nigel Neal, the creator and writer, wouldn't let them um, you know, he wouldn't let them just make up their own Quatermass movie so they hired Jimmy Sangster to um, write uh, a film called X the Unknown which is basically a Quatermass film without Quatermass in it um, and that was also a very um, successful film um, in Britain and by the time that was made there had been a TV sequel to Quatermass which was broadcast in 55 called Quatermass 2 so um, as a result of that the movie was then made in 57 I think so it's the same year that The Curse of Frankenstein came out um, and it's remarkable in loads of ways one of the ways in which it is remarkable is i think it's the first ever film sequel to be called something two i think it is i um, think it is you know which it, and it created um a convention in movie making there that i deeply love and miss because everything now is it's not something two it's colon something else it's the hunger games catching fire Something like that, but um, and uh, but this is unusual as well. The film has a reason for being called Quatermass Two because a, a large plot device in it and in the TV series is the rocket that Quatermass has made, which is called the Quatermass Two rocket. The character created by Nigel Neal, um, Professor Quatermass, is the head of the British rocket group. He's basically the guy in charge of the British space program. In the Quatermass experiment, he's launched an orbital rocket, which comes back to Earth with something nasty on it. And in Quatermass 2, he's trying to continue his work, but being frustrated by bureaucrats and things. He really wants to create a program which will launch several several rockets to the moon and create a base on the moon, which um, has been designed. Um, but at the start of the movie, he um, he's kind of between projects, and he gets drawn into a mystery about uh, 
unknown meteorites that are falling on a, a, a village, an English village called Winnerton Flats. Um, and when he goes to investigate that town, he finds that there's a, a large secret scientific base there, which resembles the kind of thing he would have liked to build on the moon. It's got huge kind of atmospheric pressure domes, as um, Brian Dunlevy hmm. says. Um, looking into where this has come from, he finds that it's it has been created by a conspiracy in the British government, which involves alien beings. Things get darker, not lighter, um, from there, really. What do you think about Quatermass 2? I, I think it's terrific. I think it's a very, very effective, very atmospheric. It's a very atmospheric film, quite intense political thriller. I mean, we talk about Scream and Scream again having a political element, having being like a conspiracy thriller. This also is, but I think it's a much more effective one because of the understated way it's done. Mm. Um, and it's very powerful. And the idea that sort of people in the government are alien um aliens in disguise or you know they've been possessed haven't they sort of thing yeah but anyway that they are aliens uh it's actually quite 1957 it's actually quite provocative and quite powerful um yeah i think i think it's it's interesting because this as you say this came out the same year as curse of frankenstein um mm. and they're totally different you yes know, this absolutely. is a black and white understated set film set in set in the present day it's got very murky but beautiful black and white photography oh, by looks, gerald look, gibbs it looks amazing Whereas Curse of Frankenstein is colour, lurid, melodramatic, theatrical kind of film. They're two very different kinds of films. And I suppose Hammer could have gone either way. Because both yeah. those films were successful. As it was, Curse of Frankenstein was more successful. So they decided to go down the colour, sort of gothic route. Well, and do all the classic monsters rather than the, the understated black and white sci-fi I, route. I think the Curse of Frankenstein was successful around the world. Whereas films like Quatermass were only successful at home. All the Quatermass films bombed in America. Um... But um, they are brilliant films. Yeah, yeah. They're both brilliant films, and they both work. And Hammer do them extremely well. Yeah, It's just absolutely. that The Curse of Frankenstein was more successful than... And it would be interesting if maybe Quatermass 2 had been successful, whether they would have gone, made more films like that. Or if Quatermass Experiment had been more successful, they would have gone... Maybe yeah. More. They I did w- do some I wish. psychological thrillers, which were black and white. So they did make other black and white films, but Hammer was associated with colour. And yeah. with sort of like technical and very sort of lurid gaudy colour kind of no there are other kind of mysterious black and white British sci-fi movies that were made later that are kind of associated with the tradition of Quatermass films like Village of the Damned Unearthly um, Stranger Night the Night yes, Caller the night, yes uh, John John Crish's The Night mm. Caller I think that is that's, that's very good um, but apart from the Hammer film The Damned which we've just been talking about um, none of these movies are actually Hammer films and the later Quatermass and the Pit film is a Hammer film, but it's in colour and things. It doesn't really feel related no, to... No, Quatermass and the Pit is much more like the established Hammer horror style yeah. uh, 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 of filmmaking. I mean, it's not a gothic horror film, but... It, no, no, it's, but it's, it, it looks, it's got the same sort of look yeah. as it and the same sort of quality. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, no, Quatermass 2 is a, a terrific film. It's uh, lean and exciting and mysterious, I think. Yes. And I also want to say, because I know a lot of people criticise Brian Don Levy and say he's miscast, he's not very good. Uh, for, me, it, for me, it works. For me, his performance is perfectly fine. It's a very doer and, and, and humorless performance and, and you know, there's not a lot of light relief in it. But in the context of the film, I think it worked. And he was a great actor. You know, he, he worked with Preston Sturgis. In the Great McGinty, and he's oh. in a classic film noir called The Glass Key, and he's yeah he's in quite a few westerns, 
so he's a very good actor. It's not like he, he's a bad actor playing the part. He's a great. He's a very good actor who perhaps is slightly out of his comfort zone here. But I, I think it works. Uh, when I watch it again, it doesn't. The performance doesn't bother me as much as it seems to bother other people. I think it's right for the film. Well, the he's thing that about sort of character. Think about Pro- Professor Quatermass. He's he's not a guy in the crowd. He's not the guy next door. He's not an everyday person. He is um, a highly intellectual guy. A kind of um, um, not anti-establishment, but um, individualistic. Well, he's obstinate, scientist. and he's stubborn, and he's bullish, and he's, you know, he, and Don Levy conveys that. I yeah, I, I think that there is, in Neil's original character, there is a gentleness to him as well, which isn't there in Don Levy's performance, but neither is it there in the script. No, it's not in the script, of, that's the thing. Of the, well, I'd say of the Quatermass experiment, he's, he's non-gentle, and he's actually quite harsh in a lot of ways. Um... And even at the end of the film, he doesn't seem to show see. He doesn't seem to show any remorse for what's happened and the disaster about what's happened to this astronaut who's on his, his rocket. And he says, "Well, I'll just build another rocket." That's the end of the film. Um, I don't think Nigel Neal would have done that or liked it. And in the sequel, there is a softer edge to the character and more attempt to show him as a human being who cares about other human beings. It's but it's not the strongest aspect of the film. I think he plays the part that he's given to play. I think that's mm. the character in the, that's the character that Val Guest has intended for the film, yeah. rather than Nigel Neal has intended. That's you know, and lots of British films had American stars in those days. And I, I think it's very well. It's pretty well directed by Val Guest. I you think know, it's very he, well he was a good documentary style director who shot great natural looking stuff on locations. There's a terrific Hammer film that we'll never mention in this never talk about in depth in this podcast because it's not a horror or even a sci-fi type film it's a police thriller called hell is a city much of it filmed on location in manchester by val guest and it it looks terrific and it feels like life you know um and i think uh he he brings that to great mass as well yes oh yeah it's 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 very understated it's very sort of like powerful also the first film um, has uh, it's kind of like the show is completely stolen by an actor called Richard Wordsworth yeah. playing the infected alien, and so all the other characters are sort of you know he's the one that compels the audience's attention. Uh, whereas in this film there isn't that sort of Don Levy is much more you know the focus of the film. Yeah, but there's lots of good actors in this. I mean, there's uh, there's um, there's Sid James. Yes, uh, of course, he was always welcome. And appeared in, I think, every single British film made in the 1950s. Um, yeah, well, he's... Um, I've never seen it, but there's a film which is like a gangster version of Macbeth. Joe Macbeth. Joe Macbeth. Yeah. And, and he plays the Banquo character in it, who's called Banky. <laughs> <laughs> he's great. There's a guy called Percy Herbert, who's in lots of war films. He's in it. Vera Day, who was a starlet of the time. Um, John Van Eysen, who's in Dracula. The Hammer yeah. Dracula is in it. Uh, William Franklin... So, William Franklin is great. Hammer it? always kind of had all these great actors playing supporting parts. They could, they could. Charles Lloyd Pack, who's a, uh, in lots of different Hammer films, is in it. And, and but a wonderful thing about Quatermass too, um, uh, unlike Quatermass one, and also unlike Hammer's Gothic horror films, is that because it's, it has this police. It like Scream and Scream again. It has a police procedural quality to it. You know, there's a police inspector played by John Longdon who helps Quatermass in his investigation, and it's got scenes with um, higher-ranking coppers, and it's got scenes with government officials and things like this, and it's 
uh, all done in that kind of polite 1950s style that y- you you see in any film from that period, any, any British film. But underneath it, in Quatermass 2, um, there is some real horror. There are evil things afoot. Mm. Um, some very nice characters come to some very horrible fates. Yes. That if you don't see it, when you see it, it's quite nasty enough, but there are some characters, uh, like the one played by John Ray, who just kind of walks out of shot. And then later on, you find out that something absolutely horrific has happened mm. to him. You know, um, yeah, there's yeah. a great scene where the police, John Longdon, I think it is, goes in to see Superior, and it turns out his Superior is an alien. Yeah, has got the and it's that, that that mounting sense of paranoia, that mounting sense of because well, there's the, unease. the thing that was perhaps um, ripped off in the American TV series of the '60s, The Invaders. The which, Invaders, uh, <laughs> a QM production, um, starring Roy Finnis. Yes, yeah, definitely part of my youth, something that terrified me every Wednesday night on uh, Def 2, on BBC 2. But, um, yeah, in that series, the the world was being infiltrated by aliens, and you can tell that there's something about them that you can tell when a person is an alien, and I think in The Invaders that it's because they can't bend their little fingers. They've got a crooked little finger. Or crooked. Mm. Yeah, in Quatermass 2, they've got a little V-shaped mark Mm. because everybody who's been affected by these meteorites, when it stings you, it leaves a little V-shaped scar. Um, And um, and and some people have got little scars on their hairlines or on one cheek or something. There's there's an interview online on YouTube with Vera Day the starlet who you mentioned, who was a kind of... Um, she's a bit like Barbara Windsor. A bit like Barbara, a bit like Dinah Dawes, Thai, perky blonde, yeah. cockney. And she was in a lot of those kind of comedy films of the late 50s, but her career kind of um, came to an end because she was offered a part in Saturday night and Sunday morning, but she turned it down. Um, and not realising that the kind of gritty kitchen sink drama that that movie represented was the coming thing and once she missed that opportunity she couldn't get into the others so she she um called time on her acting career for 25 years or so until she was cast by guy ritchie in lock stock and two smoking barrels apparently yeah yeah. i had no idea i I know all this because of of seeing an interview with her on uh, on youtube and uh, when she was in quatermass 2 um you know, she gets stung by one of the meteorites, so she was supposed to have a V mark appear on her face or something. But she said, "No, <laughs> she said, no way, darling. You, you're not spoiling this complexion." And she, she, she ended up getting them to put the V just under her shoulder, which, uh, so, which, um, no doubt justified Val Guest's slow track forward zoom towards the cleavage shots, which I think happens. Yes, that's, uh... One of my favourite scenes. <laughs> someone, uh, someone says something like, "Did you throw <laughs> something on her chest?" Uh, no doubt. Um, uh, oh, did yeah. know. Is she still with us? Is she still alive? I, I think so. Oh right. Oh, I hope I so. Have no idea. I she, was wondering what happened to her. She was certainly interviewed relatively recently. There's um, for a lot of the restored DVDs or Blu-rays that have recently come out of Hammer Films, um, they've they've made various documentaries. I think the 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 company owned by Marcus Hearn, who publishes the Reynolds and Hearn books, which we love, like English Gothic and stuff, and the Peter Cushing Companion. Peter Cushing, the authorised biography and things like that. Uh, anyway, they made various documentaries for these Blu-rays as recently as 2012-2013. So, certainly, um, she was um, alive when those were made. Oh, excellent. That man made up. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, she's in Kiss of the Vampire, isn't she, I think? Oh, is she? I've never yeah. seen that one. That's one of those... I always wonder if one of those people that like, disappeared. And you think, well, well, do they just get married and right. give it up or whatever? Or... I didn't know. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Vera, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Vera Day. This this podcast is about your movie. There aren't that many podcasts about Quatermass 2. Um, there are some. <clears throat> and I'll put links to them in the uh, in the show notes, actually, because they're, they're, they're interesting listening. Um, so, yeah, uh, and and I... I think we'll play it later in the series, but uh, the music by James Bernard on Quatermass 2 is, is fantastically yeah. memorable. I it's really powerful. When I first it's saw really the movie, powerful. when I was about 12, I think I saw it laying out on Channel 4, and then I, I, I taped it, but I lost the tape or I erased it or something, and I couldn't see it again for two or three years. But I remember that music just stuck in my head, and when I eventually did see it again on the Sci-Fi Channel, I was like, oh, yes. It, it's, it, yeah, it's so eerie. Um... And vicious the music, um, yeah, yeah. It's a great and, and the, the ending. I'm not going to give away the ending, but the ending kind of le- again leaves you with a sense of unease. The things aren't kind of wrapped up neatly. Yeah, you that's know, true. With a sense of oh, you know, bad things could still happen. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, a wonderful film. Yeah, so a great film. A great check film. it out. And even though it's a sequel, you don't have to see the original. No, just no. it works. Well, though, although do watch the original if you haven't seen it. It's uh, well if you've seen that's one, great as well. If you've seen one Quatermass film, you must watch them all. Mm. Um, and I, and I like discovering fans who don't know that there are actually four Quatermass films in total, really, really. And you should make sure you watch them all in in one form or another, um, because they they're, they're they're all great spins on the the kind of concept of the alien invasion. And, uh, and Quatermass 2 certainly is. Great, uh, that's the bag of death for this month. And now it's time for the bag of death. Here is your bag of death, Howard. Right. Let's have a good rummage in here. Oh, great. Island of Terror. Oh, you're joking. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that was one that I only recently added to the bag. Oh, excellent. Because I recently watched it. Yeah, and I recently watched it on the Horror Channel. Thanks, Horror Channel. Yes, uh, um, me too. Um, Horror Channel tends to show it in the middle of the day, which means that they can't show some of the more gruesome bits. But, no. Um, so, Island of Terror. Um, I know that we've mentioned this on the podcast, I think in the very first episode, you talked a little bit about it. Yeah. But now we've both seen it, let's fill in the background a bit. I think it's 1966? It's 1966. Uh, it's made by a production company called Planet Films, isn't it? It's Planet not Hammer Film, Films, not Amicus. Planet it's Film not, Productions. Planet uh, was a yeah little rival studio that tried to do horror sci-fi movies, and like Amicus, um, tried to use their stars and their talent. So um, this film has Peter Cushing in it, and it's also directed by Terence Fisher. Um, and it's an original screenplay, um, but it's kind of... Although it's in colour, it's similar in tone and, I guess, to the Quatermass films. Yes. It's like a sci-fi horror B-movie. And it's about... uh, Well, I I came up with... My alternative title for this film is uh, Dave and Brian versus the Cancer Creatures. (laughs) Because they are... The two scientists are called Dave and Brian. Um, I can't remember what their surnames are. One of them is played by Peter Cushing. uh, The other one's played by Edward Judd. Um, and there's a, an island where a, an experiment to find a cure for cancer has gone terribly wrong, and yes. um, uh, 
resulted in strange creatures roaming the this island and victimizing the population. And uh, Dave and Brian get called in to, to go to the island and try and solve the problem, uh, but get stuck there. And it then becomes a very claustrophobic fight for survival. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's again one of those films where scientists with the best of intentions do something terrible. Uh, but the way it's built up is is it's all set in this island, uh, in in Ireland, I think it is, isn't it? It's an Irish it is, island. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of the actors in the supporting cast are Irish. People like Eddie Byrne uh, and Niall McGuinness is in it, who was uh, great as Carswell in Night of the Demon. Yeah, yeah. He plays a part in this. And some kids in it. Seems we mentioned him Irish. earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a lot of the in actors and supporting parts, I don't I don't know because they're sort of Irish actors who worked in Ireland, presumably. Um, but yeah, who's, so, the, so, who's the female lead? Uh, it's Carol Gray. Yeah, yeah. And who's she's... one of those sort of like actresses who did a lot of things in the 60s, well, a few things in the 60s and was in the, these sort of films and then has sort of vanished without trace. You know, there are people yeah. like Janet Monroe uh, was another one and um, Yvonne, Yvonne Monlure, who's in a couple of early oh. Hammer films. She's wonderfully charming and still, I, I believe, still very much alive. Oh. And you can see an interview with her on The Brides of Dracula DVD oh. or Blu-ray, and she's um. she's, in a way, it's weird. She's, you know, 50, 40, 50 years later, she's still very much Yvonne Monlauer. Yes, and and has that charming, that very charming manner and well, accent. That's in the last podcast, I found out that Vera Day was still alive. Now I find out that Yvonne Monlauer's still alive. That's 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 great. It's one of the best parts of the podcast is finding out people are still alive. You well, know? And this is all thanks to Marcus Hearn and his documentary makers team. I think that the place where I saw that Vera Day was still alive was in a documentary called Hammer Glamour, which uh, is on one of the DVDs. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. But yeah, so Carol Gray is very good. Um, and she plays this... Um, well, she's, she's Edward Judd's girlfriend. She's love interest, yeah. She's, she's um, but she's also like the daughter of a rich industrialist or something. So when they say we've got to get over to this island, there's an emergency, she goes, well, my dad has a big helicopter and I'm sure I could get him to lend it to us. Um, and she she kind of takes charge in that moment. And that's quite interesting. Unfortunately, she doesn't really get much to do for the rest of the film, apart no. from scream at stuff. And look pretty. It's but interesting. She's good. One of the interesting things about it is there's there's, it's suggested that there's a certain, a little bit of jealousy on part of Peter Cushing's character oh. when he sees these two together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says something about, oh, I'll have to play solitaire or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, there's interesting interplay. And there's, well, that's an interesting little thing which I don't usually do. Peter Cushing is Brian, by the way. Yeah, Edward, Cushing, Edward Judd is Dave. Impeccable as always, brilliant as always. Plays Dr. Brian Stanley, I think his name is, who's an expert on something. And Edward Judd is an expert on something else. Uh, and... <laughs> we pay attention to these details. <laughs> but I don't think it matters in this case. They're experts. They're scientists. And no, it doesn't matter in these films. Uh, and so, and but Maybe I just like that. I like that element because it's almost like Peter Cushing's in his early fifties. Then it's almost like you know he's not going to get the girl because he's a bit, a little bit old. You know, it's the younger people who have the romantic interest, and the older, more middle-aged characters sort of left out. And I think that's an interesting little hmm. element of the film, which is not. It's not. They don't make a big thing of it, but it's there. And it's there in Peter Cushing's performance, a slight, just like hint of something. Yeah, yeah. It's not really developed all that much all the way through it, but it's there. And I think that's, it's those little things that give the films a little, you know, sort of extra bit of bite, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I I think that because of moments like that, the performance is very strong throughout. Cushing's great, obviously. Uh, So is Judd. So is everybody. Um, But... They're an interesting pair of leads. Yeah. 
Um, and because of that slight generational difference, that dynamic between them. But they obviously have a great deal of affection mm. for each other, each other as well. There's a bit where, um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's a bit where Brian, uh, Dave, mm. <laughs> and he's called Dr. David whatever, but there are moments where Peter Cushing calls him Dave. So he's always Dave to me. Um, uh, Dave has to do something horrible to Brian. To save Brian's life, and he's like, "No, I can't do it. I can't do it." And you can see that you know he obviously cares for him, but Cushing insists and gets something horrible done to him, which he takes like a man, yeah. and uh, you know with a great deal of style. Um, when I first saw this film, again, it's one of the ones I saw as a teenager. I was quite struck by that scene, how graphic it was. Yeah, to actually see the thing that happens. I thought, "Wow, for a, for a mid '60s film, that's quite strong stuff." Yeah, and when yeah. you see the the bodies that have been um, denuded of bone marrow, isn't it, or something? That's maybe? a lovely word, use of the word denuded there. Uh, they're all sort of like all, I don't know, all mushy and, you know, they're all sort of like like deflated. Yeah, well, uh, so, some kid has a great line where he says something like, there was no face, just some horrible mush with the eyes sitting in it. Yeah. And um, it's, it's not quite as horrible... Well, it is. It, it's not quite as horrible as that description, but it is quite striking is, what you yeah. see. There, are, there are moments where um, there's a dissection scene, isn't there, yeah. or a post mortem on one of the victims, and he just cuts, and you're suddenly looking at this kind of shrunken skull <laughs> on a slab, just without any kind of forewarning, and it's and it's quite alarming. Um, I mean, I think mostly the film is just it, it's a decent yarn, yeah. as you said in one of the previous podcasts. Uh, the monsters are good. Yeah, yeah the monsters good, are good monsters. Um, and there's a couple of particularly nice, like you don't see them obviously the first half of the film or so. And there's nice, gentle reveals, gradual reveals of what they are. Like you see Carol Gray's in a car and one of them is on the roof and you see it, something sliding That's over. That's a brilliant, the... that's a brilliant moment. I saw that yeah. again. I was flicking through channels on telly and Alan Taylor was on and that scene was on and it still worked. She's sitting mm. in the car and suddenly the thing goes down the windscreen. And it's like, what? Whoa. And they're in the field, Cushing and Edward Judd are in the field and come running across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so brilliant. Terence Fisher was a master of the art of, of, of scaring people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and creating those sort of little moments. And uh, yeah, it's interesting, yeah, because it's like interesting that Terence Fisher directs this because most, I think nearly, yeah, most, not all, but nearly most of the films he made for Hammer were period pieces. Yeah. They were Dracula films, Frankenstein films, they were set in the past. This is set in the present day. Uh, and it's set in like an ordinary, where well, it's on this island, ordinary, ordinary streets, ordinary place, yeah. you know, some cars and things. Um, so you might think he's a bit out of his comfort zone, but he's actually, it's 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 really good. He, he directs it, he, again, he knows. I think the, the island setting, and by the way, I think one of the less convincing things about the film is that it doesn't quite make you believe it is really an island. I think no. there's a couple of bits, sets in, shots in the docks and things, but you know, um, most of the locations are firmly landlocked looking mm. um, but I think that you know it's uh, this kind of um, this claustrophobic environment of this small island with this kind of farming community on it there's there's something quite primal about that that he keys into I think I mean in other movies like um, God like probably Night of the Big Heat which we'll talk about on another episode he's not so comfortable with the, the modern tone of it no um but he does do quite well in this and he does quite well in i think the earth dies screaming but maybe that's because that movie is about everybody's falling asleep isn't it you know so it's quite an eerie world 
Well, all I know um, is Dennis Price gets turned into a zombie. Have you not seen it? Funny eyes. Uh, I think I've seen it a long time ago. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, um, I recommend that. And uh, Lizzie Lutchens on the music. Um, so uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed um, Island of Terror. Apart from the music by Malcolm Lockyer. Um, oh, do you not like the music? Uh, not really. It's kind of. <sighs> That won't get out of your head for weeks after seeing this film. He writes kind of very beautiful but raucous, sort of dramatic music. It's very kind of insistent. Yeah, it does get in your head. It could do with more, you know, more seductive, eerie stuff, you know. Not James Bernard, something else, you know, but. But uh, that I can't. But it's like it's music that you can almost enjoy, but you wish it wasn't on the film. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's a bit mismatched. But yeah, but apart from that, I I, I think it's pretty good, and it does seem to be on Horror Channel quite regularly. So I love it. I mean, this is exactly the kind of film I really I really love. I uh, again, to me, it's got the same kind of atmosphere in a way as Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. Okay, it's supposed to be a horror film, but I just find it really charming and quaint. Right, and there's a kind of old fashioned feel to it which is lost now you know you, you're not going to get films like this it's kind of you know you sort of know everybody's the main people are going to be all right yeah you know and everybody's very reassuring well, it's and... got that kind of um kind of blunt lunk-headed way that kind of plot information is given away like the the opening scene in the laboratory where the scientists say to each other things for our benefit yes. like um well we have something here that we can't test around the world but we'll test it now and then inform the rest of the world. And by the morning, we may have the cure for cancer. Yeah, it is yeah. that. I mean, yeah, it's clunky where people tell each other things they already know. But I think in this sort of film, that's accepted. That's, yeah, yeah, that's no, okay I think that Because you need to get that information over. What so I mean, I do think that was kind of quite charming. I'm glad those characters didn't go on to be main characters in the film. They're no. killed immediately. Yes, they are. Um, uh, no, I, yeah, it is. It's a romp. It's a yarn. It's, a, it's a, just a, you know, just a piece of entertainment. That demands nothing more the audience so you just sit back and enjoy it and get caught up in it and you know and yeah the monsters are, are, are great and um, various people are killed off and there's lots of action and uh, yeah what more do you want no I enjoyed it and Peter Cushing's in it yeah and he's great yeah no fair enough always is um, I think you've sold that one Howard <laughs> nice work I think it's brilliant I do I really do okay that's a, that's a favourite God bless that's what I like I don't know what I kind of thing I like that's what I like I'm trying to remember who the DP is, the director of photography. Um, might be John Wilcox. Not sure. Looks nice anyway. It's yeah. not nice kind of wholesome 60s it's got colour. It's that 60s sheen. Again, like yeah. Dr. Terror and some of the, yeah. the mid-60s Hammer films. It's got that sort of glow that those films had. Mm. Well, there we go, folks. So if you weren't encouraged enough by um, Howard's enthusiasm <laughs> in episode one, uh. go back to it now, Island of Terror. Um, I didn't regret it, and neither will you. No. Hello Lee Gushing podcast listeners, and hello Howard actually, seeing as this is a, I guess a telegram to you. Um, I hope you can tell from the uh, oral landscape that um, I'm on location again uh, in a way. This is actually um, a Spanish island called Tabarca, which I've just arrived at um, uh, by, I guess, you know, well by catamaran. I'm staying in Santa Pola, 
um, in uh, the province of Valencia where my famed and wonderful sister Maureen lives and um, I'm popping out to Tabarca to visit it because it's uh, uh, well a marine reserve and a fascinating little island and for some reason I just uh, got the urge to, to record a little report for the Lee Cushing podcast on doing this because um, I suddenly got the music from uh, Island of Terror in my head. I'm sure that this island won't be like that. It's a, a beautiful looking tiny island, li little community. It's a marine reserve. Um, it's much smaller than the one in Island of Terror um, and much, much smaller than the one in the Wicker Man, so I'm sure it will be safe. Um, I, I think the whole thing will probably take me about an hour to walk around. Maybe in a little while I'll sit myself in a bar and just out of perversity uh, produce my laptop and start to edit the next episode or the episode that you are probably currently hearing of the Lee Cushing podcast. There's a couple of dockside uh, builders vehicles driving towards me. So I'll just be quiet for a moment. The water is wonderful and green here, and um, there are loads of feral cats. Anyway, I'm going to have a stroll. Construction vehicles, that's the word I was looking for. A couple of um, constru construction vehicles are just heading towards me along the jetty, so I'll have to be quiet for a moment. Actually, I've just realised I'm on a remote desert island being followed around by construction machinery. It's not like Island of Terror, it's more like Killdozer. <laughs> it's okay though, the pickup truck's gone now. The forklift truck's gone now, I, I don't think it saw me. So thanks folks. Howard, that was my dispatch from the Island of Tabarka. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I've never been to Spain, I've never been to Spain. Uh, I've been to Italy, Portugal, Switzerland, and France. I'm all around the British Isles and uh, Southern Ireland, but I've never been to Spain. I'd like to. I've never been to any of the places you mentioned, apart from the British Isles and Italy. So, um, But no, it's lovely. Um, and that island was fascinating, because there's basically nothing on it. It's a small amount of shops, all of which were closed. What's that? Is that, what's that film where all the children go mad and start killing people? That's in Spain, isn't it? Was that in Italy? Isn't it called um, Could You Kill a Child? Yeah, something like that. Something like... With Louis Fiander. Is Louis Fiander in it? Yeah, okay. who they said was dead and it turns out he isn't. Although by the time this gets put online, he might be dead. I hope he, I hope he isn't. I hope you're alive, Louis. Oh, right. Okay. I do like your bizarre middle European accents. But, um, it's a great Louis Fiander. Yeah. I've never seen that film either, but I, I, I've sort of seen bits of it on YouTube. It's called Who Could Kill a Child? Who Could Kill a Child? But one of those films have got about six different names. Yeah, yeah, of uh, course. And I only mention it because that, that sort of, uh, that's the, in a way, that's the Spanish horror film that I think of when, um, more than any other, even more than Horror Express. Horror Express seems British, even though it's filmed in Spain, mm. and set in Russia or whatever. 
just because Peter Cushing Christopher Lee are in it. And, you know, whereas, um, so, and it looks like a Hammer film in a way. If you ignore the fact that the voices aren't quite matching with the mouth movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that seems like a British film. But um, this thing about with Louis Viander, um, what's it called? Could You Kill a Child? Who Could Kill a Child? Yeah, Who Could Kill a Child? Which I've never seen. But it's one I've read about a lot, and um, yeah, I think it's in Jonathan Rigby's book that I was reading, and uh, there's a lot about it in there. Uh, his book about European horror films. It must have been that, yeah. Yeah, because he's now written, I, I love his English Gothic book, which I always refer to, but he's now written books about European horror, and about early Hollywood horror, kind of classic era Hollywood. I've certainly read it somewhere, I can't remember, I've been not about this And one Mark Gatiss is a big fan of it. And oh, that's it, it. that's what it was, it was in Mark Gatiss' documentary, that's why... That, yeah, that's it. I'm getting old now, so the odds I'm settling and I, I forget. That. Yeah, it was on Mark Gatiss' documentary about European horror. And he did a big thing about uh, this film with Louis Viander. Uh, and all the children kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that just reminded me, it was all set in a Spanish town. And it just sort of, it's kind of fun that we couldn't make him, but, you know, in a way it's, it's, it seems, I don't think we'd, you know, Different types of abilities. Well, I think that uh, Tom Shankland's The Children is an attempt to do that mm. sort of thing. Oh yeah, but not not right. Um, and the children turn go mad and kill people simply because they've been so abused by the adults. That's why, right? You know, they have to just go. Well, why do you think that we couldn't make a film like that? I don't know. Perhaps we could. I don't know. It just seems perhaps we could then. Um, I don't know. Killing a child is still. A taboo. Very yes, a taboo and very very, I'm quite right, you know. Um, and certainly when that film was made, it was made by 1975, or 1976. Around we, we in this country were making things like The Ghoul and Captain Kronos, and we were still in that sort of area of horror filmmaking. And, and there is a film I suppose uh, called, which I have seen, I wish I hadn't, called I Don't Want to Be Born with Joan Collins. Have you seen that one? Which gives birth to a, a complete exorcist ripoff. Uh, I uh, haven't seen it, no, I avoided it. It's not British, is it? Yeah, it is British. It is British, yeah. oh dear. Joe Connors and Donald Pleasance. Right. Amongst others. Um, and that's got a sort of evil baby in it, but it's done... It's not... Well, I think the thing about sort of evil children horror films is that because of uh, possibly subconscious worries about harming children on screen. Yes, I think that's the, the evil ch child always wins. Yes, and therefore, because it's all right for children to kill adults on screen, that's fine. So, um, so these films are quite predictable, you know. And I, I think um, the Omen gets away with it because nobody expects the evil kid to kill Gregory Peck. No, you know, um, but. Which he doesn't directly, but you know, but he does win. No, um, I think that the only gets away with it simply because Damien doesn't actually kill anybody physically. No, no. no. Um, the devil, whatever, causes all these terrible accidents, or suppose accidents to happen. Everyone's head being cut off and all that. Um, and that's all right. That's it's not the child actually doing it. The image of a child killing somebody, just as directly as that, is sort of. I think it would be. Um, quite difficult to do in a way, in in a, in a sensitive way. I don't yeah. know. I haven't seen this this Spanish film, so I don't know how they do it. Mm. Um, I get the feeling that you, in a way, sympathise with the children simply because the children have been abused by the adults and have been ill-treated, and it's all about what we're doing with the world. And you know, we're bringing children into this world which is so full of conflict. And even 
that things haven't changed. So, some sort of conflict, some sort of mm. warfare, some sort of violence, some sort of upheaval of political conflict, or that sort of thing. That uh, you know, why should they turn on us? Yeah, we're messing up their world for them. What they're going to grow up into? So why, why, you know, adults are asking for it in a way. I think that's how that film is sort of presented. And I don't think we'd have the guts to quite do that. I think British horror films are still quite conservative in, in, at that time. In the children, yeah, the film you mentioned, which I saw a couple of years ago, um, is different in the sense that they are evil children. They yeah. are just, you know, sort of stereoid, sinister, evil children. And there's no real explanation. And there's no explanation and there's no kind of political context for it or anything that might explain it. They are just... And that always makes you slightly uncomfortable because children aren't evil. Mm. You know, children are innocent and... and it's adults who do all the bad stuff. And so the idea of evil children, uh, I don't know, it's slight, slightly, slightly uncomfortable. I, I love the omen, I do like that, because that's just schlock. But, uh, it's always a bit uncomfortable when it seems to be kind of adults, and the filmmakers are obviously adults, yeah. kind of blaming uh, evil on children. Yes, I think it's the idea that somehow people are born evil, which I just don't, mm. you know, Agree with that at all? I don't know. Well, evil is a powerful word anyway. Are people evil? Like, are people just do act out of extreme self-interest? You know? Oh yeah, of course. It's uh, well, that's a whole other kind of worms. I do think, without going into something that we might, well, I don't think this film's in the bag of death because you haven't seen it. But no, the I Hammer seen film, it. Well, no, not this film, but the Hammer film to the, to the Devil a Daughter uh, is a good kind of response to that kind of thing, actually, because although it's kind of ripping off the omen in The Exorcist, um, certainly The Exorcist, um, the child in it, Nastasia Kinski, yes. is um, more kind of being manipulated by adults. She, you know, it's it's not an evil child film in that sense, and it is a kind of, I, I think, quite a powerful kind of spiritual thriller um, about the frightening length that people go to when they uh, believe um, something uh, satanic, you know, or they feel that they're into alter Satan in some way. So um, uh, that's one that I recommend, and it's always kind of in the back of my mind. It, it, it's it's not the best film ever, but it did make a, an impression on me when I first saw it. Um, I, saw, I saw it a long time ago, a long time ago. Uh, doesn't Dan Elliott catch fire? No, somebody catches fire. Uh, it's Anthony, Anthony Valentine. Valentine yeah, fire. it's the first thing I ever saw Anthony Valentine in. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Anthony Valentine. He's one of the great villainous actors of TV, I think. Yes. You know. Yeah. Also, a quick word, I didn't mention it in the last podcast, talking about great villainous actors. Uh, the actor John Carson died, actually quite a few months ago, before Christmas. Oh, yes. Uh, and he was 89, so he had a good innings. Uh, but he was a favourite actor of mine. He's been playing with the zombies and Taste of the Dracula. And, um, and Captain Kronos. Captain Kronos, yes. And rather very neat little science fiction film, a very good film called uh, Invasion. No, The Nightcrawler. Oh, the Nightcrawler, yes. Yes, yes. with uh, Morris Denham. And that's it. If you get a chance to see that film, that's, that's a good one. I think it's on YouTube, so. Yeah, absolutely. He's in that. that. And he's in The Avengers and all these sort of things, playing velvet voiced bad guys. And um, and also, uh, he, he was one of the voices on Thunderbird. Yeah, he, yes. What? So he went to Jerry Anderson, apparently, and said, how the hell did you get James Mason to do voice this? And I've seen an interview with John Carson. He said, yes, I have this. I did quite well, because I had this accidental, he said, uh, resemblance vocally to James Mason. And so I was able to do a lot of voiceover, things like that, and make a very nice living out of that. 
so yeah, so he died. So I just wanted to pay my tribute to him because he's Absolutely. great in everything. Yes, died peacefully at his home, which I believe was in South Africa. Yes, he lived in South Africa. He went back to South Africa when apartheid was. Was he just South African? Uh, no, uh, yeah, I think he was born in right. South Africa and came over here when he was very young to go to university. One of those people sort of drifted into acting kind of accidentally, wanted to do something else, wanted to be a lawyer, and then sort of just went to see some plays and got involved, and people said he was good, he was good, and then just sort of went on from there, so, right. yeah. One of my favourites, anyway, and uh, another one gone, yes. another one. Oh, well. <laughs> um, many left, let's not get on that No, we're never going to get morbid. Um, no, still lots alive. Well, that's a note to end on. That's a note to end on. Sorry for the random grab bag clip show nature of this episode. Hope you found something to enjoy, and if you did, there are a few more similar short chats between Howard and I about British horror films on the Ambidextra Solutions Limited YouTube channel. And I'd just like to say thank you, Maureen, because if it wasn't for her influence on me, I wouldn't be here doing this, and you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. So, if you've enjoyed anything we've put out on this podcast, you owe her your thanks too. Please spare a moment for Maureen in your thoughts, and her husband, Richard. She was too young, and a lot of people's lives would be less fun, and less bright without her around. But the show must go on. Our episode about Bram Stoker's Dracula will hopefully be up in the next few days, and next week Ian, myself, and our returning guest, Tim Shaw, will record a chat about 1973's ghostly chiller, The Legend of Hell House. Appropriately, a film that so terrified Maureen that she would talk about it in hushed, awe-struck tones. Let's see if it holds up. Thanks, listeners. Till next time. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited Presented by T.D. Velasquez and Howard Whittock Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at leecushingpod. Follow us on Twitter at andnowpodcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast. And now the podcast stops.